happy Wednesday. I've been very fortunate to have had some more space and time to record more episodes lately during COVID-19, being home, and just trying to stay engaged and productive. And I love making these podcasts. I'm very grateful for all the guests that come on. And if you're just tuning in for the first time now for this episode, this podcast is about mental health, well-being, personal development, growth, healing, and I don't do a traditional introduction every episode. I just kind of go with the flow. It feels more authentic for me and more in alignment with the casual laid-back energy that I want this podcast to have. So this morning, I'm so grateful, and we're all very fortunate to have Dr. Rosen, who is a doctor from the States, from, I want to make sure I'm saying it right, but the Gaudiani Clinic, and they really specialize in helping people with eating disorders recover, and we're going to discuss a lot of uh, biological, scientific, body changes, all of these various kinds of topics related to eating disorders today, and she's just going to take the first few moments to introduce herself and her journey to describe how she got to where she is today. Okay, everyone, here is Dr. Rosen. Hi, so I'm Alyssa Rosen, and I'm an internal medicine physician and also a certified eating disorder specialist. That's not a very common profession to have, so a lot of people ask me sort of how I got into this field. And for me, it just kind of happened by chance. Um, I did my medical training in Florida and then decided I wanted a change of scenery and decided to move to Colorado. And it just so happened that as part of my training after medical school in Colorado, I worked at a hospital where um, several of the physicians were leading experts in the medical complications of eating disorders. And so when I was rotating through that hospital, I got really interested in potentially joining their efforts as they were trying to build um, a medical stabilization unit for people who had severe symptoms um, related to eating disorders. And so after I finished my training, I joined at that hospital and I worked there for six years, um, both in the hospital and on this medical stabilization unit for patients with severe forms of eating disorders. And then made the transition to the outpatient field about a year and a half ago in part because I also have always considered myself to be a recreational athlete and um, sort of my personal life and professional life started intersecting where I was seeing um, in my personal life a lot of people who were recreational athletes um, sort of in running groups that I would uh, be in that were struggling with a lot of fueling issues and were having medical symptoms that were similar to what I was seeing in the hospital, maybe to a lesser degree. Mm -hmm. And so I got really interested in particular in working with people who are active, whether recreationally or professionally, who might be struggling with underfueling and medical complications that result. And so that was one of the reasons that I wanted to shift into the outpatient field. And so I now work in an outpatient clinic and we focus on medical care for patients with eating disorders, disordered eating, or any kind of complicated relationship with food and body. Thank you so much. That was a, wow, your background's really cool. It's just so cool how, like, your experiences can just all come together and add up and then lead you in a direction that really supports your passion for helping people with this, struggling with this. Totally, yeah. I think in the medical profession in particular, um, there's not a lot of training in eating disorders. Uh, from my own personal experience, I think we had 
maybe one or two lectures in sort of a psych section in medical school, but really no mention of medical complications of eating disorders. And I think physicians will 1,000% see an eating disorder patient in their lifetime. They may go unnoticed because they don't know what to look for. And so um, part of my passion too is providing education for people about the medical complications of eating disorders because, again, it's not something that across the board is talked about a lot um, in, in medical education, and so doctors just don't know a lot about it. So, Yeah, I've definitely had that firsthand experience too, just with like a few of my general doctors because basically, I don't know, I know you listen to one pod, one, a couple, one or two podcasts, but I started this podcast because of my experience with bulimia and then overtraining losing my period many times, having like a crossover between um, hypothalamic amenorrhea and possibly PCOS, but sometimes I accept that with a grain of salt. Um, but I noticed when I went to my my like regular doctor, she was just, when, when I lost my period and I told her like, oh, I've lost a bit of weight, like, and I told her a, a bit about my struggle with bulimia a few years ago, she was just like, oh, don't do that, just eat more, or like, and it, it, I didn't take it offensively. I, I don't think she even knew what she was saying, but I was like, wow, like you don't, that's not really what you would say to someone anyway. But I was just like, okay, yeah. I'll like, so that was my first insight into like, maybe they don't, maybe most doctors don't have that much knowledge about around it unless they want to become a specialist or spend more time learning about it. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And I think, you know, society in general, I think has a poor understanding of eating disorders, sort of as you cited with your experience that, the solution is simple. All you have to do is eat and you'll get better. And what I always try to remind people is that eating disorders are mental illnesses. So they are not a simple fix of just tell yourself to eat more. It's a mental illness, just like other mental illnesses. So they often require treatment by a multidisciplinary team um, and you know expert psychological care. And so it's not just a simple solution of eat more and things will get better as you probably experienced firsthand uh so yeah I think that's a very valuable point to just not not comparing but relating it to any other like mental illness that needs support maybe I mean you don't usually take medication directly related to eating disorders but maybe if it coexists with like anxiety or depression but the same way you need multidisciplinary care needing it in this instance it's the same just because it's a different type of mental illness doesn't mean it's not as equally necessary to get care. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, eating disorders require, um, you know, in my experience, multiple providers um, because eating disorders kind of transcend into multiple areas. So they affect you medically, obviously psychologically and nutritionally. And so, you know, people in their recovery work um, generally need the support from all those areas um, in order to make recovery um, yeah, thank you for that. So just moving into some questions, the first one can be very general, but how would you define eating disorders? I know there's like a long variety, a large variety, sorry, of different types. If you just want to, wouldn't mind going into a bit of explaining? Sure, yeah. So as we kind of already started talking about, eating disorders are a group of mental illnesses, and for lack of a better term, that, that involve a complicated relationship with, uh, with food and body. Um, eating disorders come in different varieties and types. Um, many eating disorders involve, um, you know, a negative body image or sort of sense of self. Some eating disorders involve a desire to manipulate body shape and size, 
often in the form of trying to lose weight or look a certain way or look thinner. Um, some eating disorders involve binge eating, um, and some eating disorders also involve binge eating with kind of compensatory behaviors in order to prevent potential weight gain from binge eating, and we call that purging. Um, the way that we diagnose eating disorders and the true definitions of eating disorders are found in a psychiatric manual. It's called the DSM for short, um, and we're in the fifth edition. So there's different criteria for different types of eating disorders, but they run a spectrum of what the behaviors involve and um, you know what each eating disorder is about. But that's kind of a general overview uh, of eating disorders. Yeah, thank you. I think I think it's so important to for everyone to know that the, the wide range, just because someone might not fit into like a direct category or know where they would fit in, or if it, they might bounce between the, like one or two labels, it doesn't mean that it's not a valid experience or a true eating disorder. And just adding on that, happening to women or men or anyone in all different body sizes too. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I think, um, you know, Probably the most common eating disorder that I see are ones that are, you know, in a category that if we have to label it, you know, other specified feeding or eating disorder because someone may not meet, you know, one criteria, but that doesn't make it any less serious than if you met all the criteria for an eating disorder. And I think as you alluded to, um, we have a lot of perceptions about what an eating disorder looks like. And for many people, an eating disorder means that you're often Caucasian, that you're thin, that you're female, um, and that excludes the vast majority of eating disorders because they happen to people of um, any gender, um, any race, any body size or shape, and so they're not just exclusive to what many people, um, I think, believe is what an eating disorder quote-unquote should look like. Um, it, it happens to everyone in different body shapes and sizes from different backgrounds, um, and so on and so forth. So I think that's a super important point to make because I so often hear people d dismissed, especially in the medical community um, or even in the medical community because they may not, quote, look the way that somebody imagines an eating disorder to look. And so it allows a lot of people who are very sick um, to go unnoticed for a long time. Yes, thank you for diving really deep into that. I think that's a systemic change I hope to see in the future, but all we can do is do the best we can with what we have and make an impact individually for now and try to collectively, I guess, elevate the standard of treatment and recognition of eating disorders in the future. Absolutely, yeah. And then, so what are some of the theories that you've come across or what does the literature say that they believe the causes of eating disorders are? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could give you a definitive answer of what the causes of eating disorders are, but I think what we do know is that they often involve multiple different facets. And so what I mean by that is eating disorders definitely have a genetic basis. So um, there's often a genetic predisposition. Um, other things that can make people predisposed to eating disorders are certain kind of psychological temperaments um, or even interpersonal things like experiences with trauma. Um, and then, of course, a big thing being the environment and cultural aspects of the environment that we live in. Um, and so one metaphor that I like is that, uh, that I've heard before is that sort of the biological, genetic, and maybe temperament aspects sort of load the gun, and then you put that susceptible person in the right environment, and it pulls the trigger. 
um, and an eating disorder can, can, develop, can develop in that situation. And as we've already started talking about, we live in a culture um, today, especially westernized culture, that is very diet culture uh, focused, where um, you know people are judged by their body shape and size, and there's an acceptable range uh, for body shape and size, and we're sort of told that anything outside of this narrow range is unacceptable, and here's the things that you need to do to change it, and that often involves you know, different diets um, and exercise patterns that are sort of preached into our ears on a constant basis. So we definitely live in a society right now um, where there is a lot of messaging that could trigger, you know, a susceptible person um, to develop an eating disorder. But overall, their development is complicated. Mm -hmm. um, I always like to tell patients as well that the food and body um, issues are kind of the tip of the iceberg. And then if you look underneath the water, there's a giant iceberg that's sort of supporting why they continue to have the eating disorder or why it developed in the first place. So treatment is not just about, you know, food and body. It's about all the other things that are going on to kind of support that eating disorder. And for each person, that's going to be different, you know, whether it's trauma, other underlying mental illnesses, um, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I definitely think that's powerful insight. Thank you for that because there's so much that is happening, like you said, underneath the tip of the iceberg that we have to dive into. And I know personally for me, it was like a balance of con or uh, an ebb and flow of trying to control and then feeling like self-sabotage and then feeling sorry for myself and then trying to control again as a way to like deal with anxiety and a bunch of other mm -hmm. stuff. So it wasn't still until I started looking at the other stuff and some personal trauma related scenarios that I started to really unpack, I think the why and how uh, of the development, which has helped me start to not take control, but take responsibility for my healing and moving forward, which has been really, really powerful for myself. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that awareness makes um, such a big difference. And as we've already talked about, eating disorders are more than just about like eating. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big part of it. but. There's so many things that go into, you know, what sustains an eating disorder or why an eating disorder develops into a person that they have to do that work, you know, to try to figure out what's going on there and how to um, kind of make changes slowly over time in those realms. Yeah, thank you. So I was also hoping that we could dive into what happens to like the body and the mind when someone is consistently underfueled, whether they're including overtraining in that, but they're just simply not having optimal energy requirements met. So like yeah, I was hoping we could talk about this, like the body systems, like the endocrine system, immune sure, system, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, I can get really nerdy really quick on this. So that's okay. Interrupt me if I start <laughs> going off. But, um, you know, essentially every single organ system in the body can be negatively impact, impacted by not getting enough nutrition. Our bodies sort of evolved over time to be able to defend us against starvation and that part of our brain still exists inside us today that when we're in a place of not it activates and its whole mission is just to keep us alive as a mammal um, and so we kind of go into a survival mode where our body makes a bunch of changes um, in order to try to conserve as much energy as possible when not enough energy is coming in. If we're talking about in sort of a movement realm as well, so in someone who's um, a quote-unquote athlete, I use that term loosely because I think many, I consider like someone that's active most days of the week, you know, you can be an athlete. Mm -hmm. um, there 
there's a term that was created by the International Olympic Committee, and I'm bringing this up because I think a lot of active people often relate to this idea, maybe more than some of the other things that I'm saying, um, created a term called relative energy deficiency in sport. I call it REDS for short because it's much easier to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, that was uh, defined in a paper a couple of years ago, and the reason they came up with this term was so that they could outline that there are many physical consequences of not getting enough nutrition for the reasons we've kind of talked about um, as the body tries to conserve energy. And there's also performance consequences that can occur. Um, So in terms of physical consequences that occur when we're not getting enough nutrition, whether you're an active person or not, again, affects every organ system in the body. One of the primary things that happens is our metabolism slows. So sometimes that may show up on labs as you might have some thyroid lab abnormalities or changes because our thyroid is the primary driver of our metabolism. And so part of our way to slow our metabolism is to slow our thyroid activity. So our metabolism slows because we want to spend less energy doing things. Another thing that is common to happen is that our heart rate slows down because it takes a lot less energy to beat our heart at a normal rate than it does at a slow rate. While at the same time, I often see that a heart rate might be very slow at rest, and then if I ask someone to stand or walk across the room, the heart rate just jumps up and spikes by many, many points. And that's because as a body is getting less and less nutrition, it's also breaking down muscle. So the muscles that support our skeleton, the muscles that drive our heart to beat, are getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And so our heart has to work a lot harder just to do basic activities in our daily life, whether it's showering, brushing our teeth, or for those that are out and active, even though they're not getting enough nutrition, that might mean when they're running, they can't go as far because they don't have as much endurance capacity because their heart is having to work a lot harder for something that used to be easier for their body to do. So we can see those low heart rate at rest, higher heart rate with movement. Um, Other things that can happen in the body um, include that our body temperature lowers because um, it takes a lot more energy to keep us at a normal body temperature than it does at a lower body temperature. So many people experience that as, I feel cold all the time, because your body instead says, well, you need to go find sources of heat because I'm not gonna spend energy to try to keep you at a normal temperature. So people tell me I'm wearing five layers of jackets and clothes when I'm going out and about, even though it's 90 degrees and it's the middle of the summer. So that's a very common symptom that can happen. Some people also might start growing an extra kind of coat of hair. We call that lanugo, and that's also another way to kind of conserve energy. Many people describe um, getting cold, discolored, uh, kind of purple fingers and toes because our body cuts off circulation to our digits to try to prevent heat loss through our fingers and toes. Um, And so that can be a really uncomfortable symptom too. other things that are much more obvious in female is that females um, is that our reproductive system shuts down mm-hmm. many times as we get more and more into energy deprivation. I know you talked about hypothalamic amenorrhea already, mm-hmm. but basically our brain sends signals to the rest of our body that says we don't want to spend energy um, having a sex drive, having sex, or potentially getting pregnant and having a baby when we don't have enough energy just to support ourselves as a human Um, and so the reproductive system shuts down in females that means that they stop producing estrogen 
Um, they often stop menstruating, which can have significant impacts on bone health. And in males, this equivalent can happen. They don't have a marker like we do, of yeah. kind of a monthly menstrual cycle. Um, but men can have much decreased levels of testosterone, which might be experienced as decreased libido, um, and that can also be impactful on bones. Um, our digestion also slows down because our body doesn't want to spend energy moving food through our body um, when, again, it's not getting a lot of food often in the first place, and second, that's very energy costly. So people can experience a lot of fullness, um, even when they're only eating small amounts, and especially when they start increasing food intake. Um, constipation is quite common, too, as your colon slows down its motility. So I could keep listing, but I know I've been talking for a while. No, so that's okay. There. Um, yeah. So those are kind of some of the major things that can happen to the body as we're not getting enough nutrition. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's it's good for people to know these signs and symptoms, even if maybe someone doesn't have an eating disorder or doesn't even know that their relationship with food might not be the healthiest. Like they might just be think they're eating healthy, but then they realize, oh, wow, I'm having – a bunch of these symptoms and maybe I haven't been eating enough which ironically in my own personal experience when I first started healing from bulimia and over exercising and I had binge eating in there and purging and a bunch of a bunch of compensation going on after I moved away from that I thought I was being healthier and eating really healthy but really it kind of swung to more of a really restrictive side and I realized wow I'm only only eating like a thousand 100 calories a day and even though I didn't weight train at that time I was still doing hot yoga and long walks daily and that's not enough fuel for me so I was having like the cold symptoms the really randomly rapid heart rate I would even wake up in the morning with a rapid heart rate and really hungry like starving at like five in the morning and I didn't at the time I was like oh this is just my new normal I'm just waking up early now like I was kind of in denial so just being able to see wow like that can add to that and that could be a a result of underfueling and, and moving too much for my, myself. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's why too a lot of people relate to that term reds because you know an energy deficiency in active people doesn't necessarily mean someone has an eating disorder. They may jo- may just not know how to fuel their body properly for whatever activity they're doing. Sure, you know, for some people that might mean that there's disordered eating in there. For some people, it might mean there's a full blown eating disorder, but. Anything that causes someone to not get enough nutrition for day-to-day life, and especially if you're adding activity on that, is going to cause um, physiologic changes in the body, um, even regardless of whether it's being driven by an eating disorder or not. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And then, this is just a side note, I hadn't had it on the question list, but have you seen... Uh, women like with their blood work when they've underfueled and over over exercised have high androgens sometimes if everything else is low um that's a good question i haven't seen that very commonly mm-hmm. um you know maybe in sort of pcos yeah. um, situations you might have high androgens sort of the typical hormonal response that i see in, in females who are under fueling um in a hypothalamic amenorrhea sense would be sort of low reproductive hormone levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, someone could have PCOS um, even if they're under fueling. And so um, they could have high androgens as a result of that as well. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I was just curious. That kind of popped into my head. Yeah. So all of the changes, like the negative impacts on the various systems, are there 
is it likely that after refueling and resting more that all of them kind of reverse or what do you see in the recovery process? Yeah, I think um, most of the complications that can occur um, as a result of not getting enough energy are reversible. You know, we're still doing more and more research about um, the medical complications of not getting enough nutrition. And so, you know, if you ask me this question again in 20 or 30 years, I may have a totally different answer for you. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, In terms of, so I think maybe there's two separate things to talk about. One is, you know, the things in, in, um, that may not be reversible from chronic um, underfueling. And then, um, you know, maybe what happens to the body is someone starts um, taking in nutrition again, sort of as two separate things. So as far as the first, um, the one complication that we 100% know is potentially irreversible from chronically not getting enough nutrition is bone density loss. Um, And so we build our peak skeleton, you know, usually in our early 20s. So you can imagine in someone who either has an eating disorder or complicated relationship with food in early years of their life and is struggling um, with amenorrhea, um, you know, they may be, they will be losing bone um, during that time. And that may not be totally reversible um, even at a young age. And it's especially harder to reverse as we get older. The reason that people lose bone density um, in the setting of an eating disorder or in anybody, again, who has amenorrhea, hypothalamic amenorrhea, specifically talking about, um, is because estrogen, which is a hormone that we produce as part of our um, normal kind of menstrual cycle, is very protective of bones. So the best data that we have is that for every year without a period, people can lose up to 2.5% of their bone density. So you can imagine if someone is, you know, 13 years old and starts developing issues with food and body and and loses their period, you know, that, and they lose their period over a long spectrum of time, that could potentially be devastating to bones over the long term. There's other hormonal changes that can also happen, um, that also do happen in the setting of not getting enough nutrition, sort of irrespective of whether someone's menstruating or not. Mm -hmm. And that's things that include high cortisol levels. I think we've all probably heard the term fight or flight. Um, You can imagine that when someone's not getting enough nutrition, they're kind of in constant like fight or flight mode and they're constantly in fight mode and cortisol is sort of your um, fight or flight hormone. And so that ramps up because it helps to keep our blood sugars up and things like that. And that's actually very detrimental to bones and causes bone breakdown. So that is one of the potentially irreversible consequences. It doesn't mean oh my gosh, I've had amenorrhea for a while, I'm a lost cause, my bones are, are kind of screwed, they'll never get better. Yeah. There is evidence that, um, you know, kind of the gold standard, again, is getting someone in females to a nutritional place where they are um, having regular menstrual cycles, and there is evidence just by doing that alone and getting someone to a place where if they were um, at a lower body weight as part of this process, which some people may not be, um, and getting someone to a body weight that can better support their health, um, that in and of itself can help improve bone density. And then there's some other treatments from a medical end that we sometimes utilize in people to help. Um, And females, that would be kind of estrogen patches. In males who are low in testosterone, we might replace their testosterone if they have bone density loss to help their bones until they kind of fix all the things that are going on sort of nutritionally. So 
So bones are one. Cool. There, there's maybe some evidence that there could be permanent changes with the heart, that the heart might do some scarring over time, but again, sort of juries out on that. And then also brain changes. Don't know for sure. I've certainly seen brain imaging in someone who's chronically malnourished that may have a smaller size brain uh, from chronic malnutrition, but I, I don't know that there's a definitive evidence to say that is absolutely something that happens to everyone and that that's irreversible, mm -hmm. but um, just something that I've seen before. Cool. Thank you for that. And then... Yeah. Um, what about when someone's starting to recover? What are some of the dangers or the negative side effects of, of, of re the refeeding process, like water retention or di digestion disturbances or anything that comes to mind? Yeah, um, so there are a couple things. And first of all, the process of increasing nutrition and for those who need it, um, gaining weight is super difficult mm -hmm. psychologically and also can be medically. So I just want to throw that out there because for anybody out there that's listening and kind of working on this process, like we know that it's really, really hard. Um, in terms of dangers, probably the one that you hear about most from medical professionals is something called refeeding syndrome. Mm -hmm. So refeeding syndrome is a process by which a body who hasn't gotten nutrition for a long time, when it starts taking in nutrition again, it gets super excited. It's like, yay, finally I can start, you know, rebuilding all these things that have gone awry over time and takes all this energy into yourself, um, including electrolytes that you're eating. Um, and so, what can happen is that it gets a little overzealous in doing that, takes in a lot of your good electrolytes, and those can drop in the blood. The dangerous part about that is many people don't feel any symptoms, and wow. their electrolytes could be dropping. So the most common is phosphorus. Phosphorus is a huge part of our building block for energy, and so you can imagine when someone hasn't been eating for a while, for a while their cells are really hungry for that phosphorus because it helps build energy. Um, so it can go into the cells and be low in the blood. Many people don't detect that that's even going on by symptoms um, until maybe it's too late. Mm -hmm. So the full-blown refeeding syndrome, which I've fortunately never seen um, since I've worked in places where we're quite aware of this process and mm -hmm. it's um, something that we closely monitor for, um, can involve people having seizures, uh, muscle breakdown, you know, respiratory failure and even kind of death from really severe refeeding syndrome. So I say this only because if there's someone out there that's, you know, struggling with their nutrition, I always tell them, don't do it on your own. You know, have someone that's helping you because they can assess, you know, whether or not you might be at risk for that. And it's as simple as just kind of monitoring some blood work while you're going through the process of increasing nutrition, as well as for someone who's at very, very, very high risk for refeeding syndrome, um, starting the introduction of calories, um, not too slow, but a little bit slower um, than we otherwise might, uh, just to avoid kind of a big change in electrolytes. So that's a very dangerous one that you might hear about um, from different medical professionals. The ones I see very commonly mm -hmm. are that for the GI system, it's really rough um, because like we talked about, part of our way of conserving energy is to slow our GI system down. Mm -hmm. So that means literally our stomach can empties food much slower than it used to. Um, that the formal medical term for this is called gastroparesis. It literally means delayed or slow stomach emptying. 
So what someone could empty from their stomach normally in four hours might take them now six, seven, eight hours. You can imagine if you're going through a process of increasing nutrition and your food just kind of builds up throughout the day and it's not emptying, that's super uncomfortable. So people might feel full easily, kind of early satiety, bloating, um, gassy, even some nausea. Mm-hmm. And many times that's reinforcing to the eating disorder of like, oh, see, I feel terrible. And, you know, it can be negatively impactful on body image when you feel like full and just bloated. And so um, from a medical standpoint, part of what I do as a profession is to try to take away some of those medical barriers to people doing recovery work. Mm -hmm. So there are some medications and some ways to approach nutrition that might help with slowed stomach emptying. Obviously, constipation at the same time can also be a huge problem. So you throw gastroparesis in with constipation and people have a really full, bloated, constipated belly um, that is super uncomfortable. And so, you know, uh, part of, again, what I try to do is take away some of those things that, again, they might then trigger the eating disorder to say, why am I doing this work? Look at what's happening. It feels so terrible. Yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. So to say, like, we get it. This is not just your eating disorder, like imagining that this is going on. These are real medical things that happen as someone's increasing nutrition and we do what we can to try to take away those barriers. Um, and then lastly, you mentioned edema. So edema is kind of retention of water. Sometimes that's visible as you can kind of poke your hand into your legs or an other area of your body and it might leave a mark. Edema can certainly happen in some people as they're increasing nutritional intake. Mm-hmm. There's different varieties, I'll say. So one can just happen as a result of increasing nutrition. Um, to get a little nerdy, as we increase food intake, our body produces much more insulin, and insulin is one of our hormones that have, helps regulate blood sugar, and so it's increasing to try to get blood sugar into our cells, again, for energy, um, and that can cause salt and water retention because insulin acts on our kidneys to retain salt and water, so that can lead to edema that can happen within days of starting to increase nutritional intake. And I call that quote unquote re-eating edema. Mm -hmm. The second type of edema that can develop is an edema that occurs in people who use um, certain types of purging behaviors as part of their um, eating disorder. So that might mean laxative abuse or vomiting, anything that causes bodily loss of fluids. So over time that leads to kind of chronic dehydration and our body doesn't like that and sort of thinks that we're, you know, a lone person in the desert dehydrated. And so it upregulates a hormone that tries to help us stay hydrated mm-hmm. by retaining lots of salt and water, again, in our kidneys. And that hormone's called aldosterone. Mm-hmm. And so then when someone stops purging, they start eating, they start hydrating. That aldosterone, unfortunately, doesn't go away right away. It can hang around for weeks. And so it keeps telling your kidneys, hold on to salt and water, hold on to salt and water, even though you're like yourself, no, no, I don't want that. Yeah. So what happens is that you hold on to salt and water and people after they stop purging behaviors and start um, increasing nutrition can develop edema from that as well. And there are some medications that we can use to try to block that type of edema formation um, for those that um, struggle with purging behaviors. And again, all of these things can be very negative, re- negatively reinforcing for recovery because you can imagine if you start increasing food intake and within a day or two, you look down and your legs are swollen or now your abdomen's swollen with fluid 
Um, those are often very negatively reinforcing for people in recovery mm -hmm. um, because they're like, well, why should I do this if all these things are happening? And can also um, kind of feed into the eating disorder feeling like your body is making all these changes that it fears really quickly when these are, are medical things that, that do happen. Um, so I think it's always helpful to know that those things can happen and that they are real. They can be treated. Um, so... Yeah, and I just want to start with saying thank you for acknowledging that, yeah, the weight gain part and the body changes are hard. They are. So, yeah, everyone, anyone listening to this that is thinking of going into recovery or getting help or not sure where to start, I think not doing it on your own is really important. Like, that's the first thing to really start to get clear with. Like, how can you create or find a team of people to support you? Because it is hard to do it by yourself. And just I do relate a lot to the first the digestion the digestion symptoms that you were talking about uh just it's very difficult and it is very affirming to your eating disorder voice in your brain that's like oh I, I this doesn't feel good to eat more I feel bloated I feel gross I don't want to I don't want to do that it feels better when I just don't eat or, or eat very minimally or eat safe foods only and it kind of creates a continuous dialogue in your head that you really have to not shut down, but acknowledge it and keep eating and doing the uncomfortable things because it, it does pass. My digestion's gotten way better. So sometimes still aren't good. It could be related. It could not be related. But I know exactly how it feels to be in the few months of just starting to eat more and feeling like everything just makes you feel gross. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people go into recovery thinking, oh, yes, this is what's going to make me feel better. And initially all these things start happening and you're like, why am I doing this? So sometimes to have that medical validation to say, it is not just you, this is something that happens when you're working on eating disorder recovery. Even if your goal in recovery, um, even in those, again, I wanna be clear, it doesn't have to be someone who's working on weight restoration um, or somebody who's necessarily at a low body weight. Mm -hmm. These changes can happen in people um, that are in any body shape and size that have been struggling with restriction um, and that are now working on increasing their nutritional intake. But I think part of what I enjoy about my job is helping to validate uh, experiences that, is that people are having and educate them on, you know, sort of the medical aspects of eating disorders so they can relate that back to their own experience and know that that is something that people struggle with and that there's ways, again, to, to sort of help from that, a medical standpoint um, and to allow them to kind of keep um, pushing through recovery, even kind of when the going is tough, um, especially during those initial phases. Yeah, thank you. And I think having the medical support and people that, and someone that validates that is knowledgeable to like yourself can be really, really helpful for people that are going through everything. And even if they have the emotional support, just knowing that they're not just making up the symptoms in their head or it's not their fault that this is happening during recovery. It's part of the body trying to heal itself and it can get worse before it gets better, but it, it will get better. So just having that support can be so, so important. Absolutely. Um, and then in your experience, what else happens during recovery that might be uncomfortable, such as over, like overshoot weight or like belly weight gain, acne, other symptoms like that? Have, have you seen things like that? Yeah. Um, so in terms of um, abdominal weight gain, um, I never want to lie to any of my patients. I know many people who struggle with eating disorders may have a fear. Uh, one of their 
you know, fierce foxes gaining weight in their abdomen. Yes. <laughs> so we already talked about that part of our response to not getting enough nutrition, again, is sort of we're in fight or flight mode. We increase our cortisol levels, and cortisol promotes abdominal weakening. So when someone's going through recovery, again, your cortisol level is going to come down, but it's high to start, and so our, our body may be more prone to gaining weight in the abdomen. I also like to look at it as you're gaining weight in areas that are trying to protect your vital organs. Um, and so that is a real thing that can happen. Um, our clinic, we, we operate from a health at every size perspective, so much more focused um, in the long term. You know, in someone who needs to weight restore, we obviously focus on that, but, um, you know, we see patients of all different shapes and, and sizes. And so trying to, in the end, sort of take the focus on, off of weight and, and focus more on health as well. So I never want to promise someone that your body may not look this way or you may not gain this much weight during recovery because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, while the weight may be important to you and I don't want to dismiss that, you know, my goal in the long run is, is for your health and, you know, your body may look, um, you know, be at a different size than, um, could be at any different size yeah. um, in order to support health. Um, so just kind of throwing that perspective out there too. That's more kind of a long-term kind of focus, obviously in the moment focus, not so much. Um, but yes, weight gain in the abdomen can occur. Um, you know, acne, I can't say for sure that that is something that happens to everyone, but mm -hmm. I certainly have people that tell me sometimes their acne gets worse. Um, perhaps it could be due to hormonal changes and adjustments that are happening, happening um, as people are working on their nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, one complaint I get a lot is hair loss. Um, and so your hair, um, the state that it's now is kind of a reflection of three months ago. So what I find a lot of times is that um, people may lose hair as they're getting more and more malnourished, but then people will often tell me that they lose even more hair once they start increasing their nutritional intake. And that's because you're looking at hair from like three months ago. Yeah. It was malnourished and is now kind of shedding and then you're regrowing new hair. So hair loss is another thing that I commonly see. Um, and that can take sometimes months, I warn people, for your hair to kind of regrow to a place um, where it maybe used to be. Um, I'm trying to think of other things um, no, that's that I okay. see commonly. Yeah. Those are, those are, those are good. Those are some of the ones that I've yeah. heard pretty regularly. Kind of major, major ones. Mm -hmm. The other one, one thing I'll say is that some people develop night sweats. Mm -hmm. I only throw this out there because it can be super alarming if you all of a sudden start waking up in the middle of the night and you're drenched in sweat and have to change your clothes and your sheets. Um, and I probably see that in maybe about half of my patients. Um, uh, maybe not that many, but in, in my hospital days, I probably saw it in about half of my patients. Um, I've heard so, that a lot too. Yeah, From, so night yeah. sweats can be common as someone's increasing their nutritional intake. I like to just view it maybe not so scientific as your body is kind of like revving up your metabolism and kind of resetting your temperature points and kind of trying to figure out, set, reset those things back to normal. And that involves the sweating at night sometimes. So that's yeah. another one I frequently hear that can be super alarming to people. Um, so that, that can happen. As I, well. I always see that question actually in like one of the hypothalamic amenorrhea support groups that I'm in. Many women comment, I'm sweating so much in the night. So that was how I first learned about it. And then I did some more research on it myself because I didn't experience that. The only things that happened in the night for me was waking up 
really early and that rapid heart rate that I told you about. But yeah. again, it's fascinating how everything just aligns differently and shows up differently for different people and in all different body sizes too. Like you can have all these symptoms mm-hmm. being technically overweight for society standard of what, what, what weight is overweight, but that's another topic, but it can happen in any body during the recovery process. Absolutely. Yeah. I think if you took 10 different people, um, and you did the same things to them and restricted their nutrition, you'd probably have 10 different ways that these signs and symptoms show up, um, both from the malnutrition and during the process of increasing their nutrition. Um, so yeah, every person has their own unique way that their body responds. Yeah. Thank you. So what do you hope to do moving forward in in your career and how do you want to continue to helping people like are you having any new ideas come up that you're in motion for creating or anything like that well I'll talk about something you know unique to sort of what we do right now Mm -hmm. uh, that I really enjoy is that um, so in our clinic we are we offer telemedicine um, and so we are licensed in over 30 states um, throughout the country And so one of my passions, again, is being able to provide care to people who uh, may not have resources in their local area. And that's part of the passion of our clinic is providing good medical care sort of across the country. And so I think that's one of the things that um, we really enjoy doing is being able to reach out to multiple different states and communities where there may not be those resources. So um, I think I'm currently licensed in maybe well over 13 states. So one of my hopes is to continue to get licensed in more states so we can have access to patients um, in even more places throughout the country. Um, And then I also, again, love working with people of all different backgrounds. But of course, my in particular passion is working with people who are active um, and maybe struggling with balancing movements with nutrition and are having medical complications as a result. Even if that means that they have an eating disorder and they struggle with overexercise, I really you know, enjoy kind of connecting um, and working with that particular population. So I hope to kind of continue to grow um, my area of expertise in that area, especially as we learn more about how you can potentially even incorporate movement into eating disorder recovery mm-hmm. um, because for a long time, um, and even probably still now in many treatment programs, especially in the outpatient setting, movement, the idea of incorporating movement into eating disorder recovery is like a forbidden taboo topic. Yeah. Um, like why in the world would you ever let somebody move um, while they're working on eating disorder recovery? Because I think, again, we didn't know a lot about what happens to the body with eating disorders. Now we're learning more. Um, and so when someone's in a place, safe place, both medically and psychologically, I'm really enjoying learning from professionals um, around the country about their practices and incorporating movements with their um, patients so that it can honestly make recovery, I think, more sustainable for many people. And there's, of course, people that don't want to do a lot of movement, and that is perfectly fine as well, Um, but just an area of my own interest in in kind of learning more about um, incorporating movement, especially in the outpatient setting, since that's where I work. Yeah, I think that's definitely an area I'm fascinated in too. Uh, yoga, for me, I'm a yoga teacher as well, and it, yoga probably started as a bit dysfunctional for me, but then it became something totally different. It really actually, 
I think accelerated and, and helped me in my recovery process and not saying that yoga is something for everyone but that form of movement was very therapeutic for my and it was still a, it was still a, a, a faster pace yoga it was vinyasa so it's not yin it's not relaxing all the time but it was very helpful for me in my recovery so I think on a case-by-case basis and with more research we can hopefully use more movement for support in their therapy or in recovery yeah absolutely i learned so much about that primarily from my patients you know we're you know in our clinic very open to trying different things and you know recovery looks different for everyone everyone gets there differently at different paces at different times and so i think we're trying to break out of the mold that like this is how recovery must be and you have to i mean sure there are some things that um you know, we work towards, I'm not saying that, but, you know, we don't have to necessarily be so rigid in how we do everything and just being more open and flexible to trying different approaches um, with patients um, to make recovery something, you know, valuable for them and kind of within their values and kind of their goals for what they want in life. So I learned so much from my patients about all of that on a, a daily basis. Cool. I love that. And then I also just want to say that's amazing that your clinic is uh, global, not global, countrywide for the U.S. I'm from Canada, so I haven't found something similar like that. But I'm gonna, I have a lot of American listeners from other podcast episodes. And I'm gonna link all your contact information below. So if anyone needs or feels they want to reach out for extra support or learn more about what you are up to, they can do that pretty easily. Great. Yeah, we love to hear from people, and um, you know, sometimes we do do consultations from people that might be out of the United. to do things that maybe 
you know, for myself personally that I've been ignoring for a super long time. Like, mm-hmm. how often do you get a chance potentially to sit down and read a book for several hours because you've got nothing else going on? For me, not that much. I used to love to read, and so I've read a couple of books lately. So I think just exploring things that I haven't done in a while. Um, I think everyone, you know, I think for me, having a little bit of a routine is helpful, um, especially right now since we're doing a lot of telemedicine and, and working from home. So on days that I'm working, it's a little bit easier because I've got things going on, but on days that I'm not, just having a little bit of a routine, obviously being flexible with that, but I think that can be helpful sometimes to feel like I'm actually getting dressed and maybe not always laying in my PJs, but there's certainly days where I think if you feel like laying in your PJs all day, that's awesome too. So um, I think, yeah, just finding new projects and things that I maybe hadn't done. And, you know, now I get to spend a lot more time with my husband and my dog and, um, you know, watch new TV shows, read new books, uh, might try to learn how to knit. That's always been a desire. So I think just finding different things that maybe you've always wanted to do and just have never made time for, um, for me, that's helpful, maybe not helpful for everyone. No, it, it definitely is. That's the same for me. I also agree with having a little bit of routine is helpful, so I try to make a little to-do list for the day, do something productive that makes me feel like I've been productive. Also, though, honoring the times when I don't want to be productive and just resting Absolutely. and enjoy, enjoying my family and doing things that I don't normally have the time to do. Like, I want to redo my whole room and get rid of so much stuff. I always say, I'll do that when I have time. Well, I have a lot of time yeah. now, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this nagging cabinet kitchen cabinet that just was like an explosion and I finally <laughs> finally cleaned it yay um, so yeah you have time for little projects when you feel up to it and yeah then, you know on days where you feel like I just want to lounge let yourself lounge so that's another thing is I feel like it's okay I think in our society we're so go 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 mm-hmm. that we never allow ourselves to have a break and so this is sort of like a forced break yeah and so I say take advantage of it and if that means like I really just want to um, watch this trashy TV show all day. If that's what's speaking to you that day, totally do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's I love my that. Encouragement for people. Yeah, thank you so much. I love that. And I just want to say thank you for for being here for the last hour and chatting about this it's really near and dear to my heart. And I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a pleasure um, being on your podcast. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay, so we've come to the end of that episode with Dr. Rosen. Very helpful information for anyone who is thinking of going into recovery, who is semi-in recovery, who doesn't know that they should recover yet or that they will recover yet. Anyone basically who's listening to this, I hope you got valuable information from it. I will be linking all of Dr. Rosen's information below and the clinic that she works at, the Guadiani Clinic. And please feel free to reach out to me at any time as well at Fully Free Wellness on Instagram or in any other way you know how to contact me. Thank you all so much and stay well.